0: My name is Laura Withy. I'm the Project Manager at the National Archives for the Cabinet Papers Project and I'm here to tell you a bit about this fantastic project and the resource we are making available to everyone. I have with me also Dr Ed Hampshire, one of the National Archives specialists in Cabinet records, who will be talking in a bit more detail about the records themselves and the fascinating opportunity they represent to delve into the government discussions that shape the country we live in today. The project has been funded by the Joint Information Systems Committee and led by the National Archives to digitise and make available online cabinet records from more than 60 years of British history, for the first time in a fully text-searchable format. The ability to keyword or phrase search the entire content of the records will really open up the collection, setting the information free to people all over the world. The papers are being supported by the creation of a new section of our website that focuses on the content of the records, helping people to learn more about the records themselves, the variety of different topics and the way they really influence people's lives over the years. The site will provide an invaluable resource to researchers and students of history. Many of the topics covered in the records are also an important part of new A-level exam specifications and university programmes. The higher education section of our site is structured to cover over a hundred topics written by historians and peer reviewed by leading academics. These packages give students an introduction to the subject area and then support them in conducting their own research. The package is associated with fantastic pictures and cartoons and in addition there are a level resources which will allow students to use the cabinet papers collection directly as part of their studies providing access to this invaluable primary resource material there is a map section where users can follow geopolitical changes over time and another exciting development online is the writing frame tool which takes students through a step-by-step framework to learn how to study primary sources and structure an essay around a central theme so now I'll pass you over to Ed who will talk a little bit more about the Cabinet papers themselves.
1: The records we are digitising are the formal conclusions of the Cabinet and their memoranda. Now, what are these and why are they are important? I'll deal with the first of these um, to begin with and then move on to why they're important. The formal conclusions of the Cabinet are actually the conclusions of individual meetings. They summarise the discussion, the arguments and then finally the decisions that are taken forward within Government. Now, these discussions um, that we um, have got here recorded on the records will um, stretch from 1916 through to the late 1970s. Um, the other aspect of what we're digitising are the memoranda. Um, the memoranda are the papers put to uh, Cabinet members um, prior to each Cabinet meeting. They're the background papers. There could be a single sheet of paper. they could be 100 sheets of paper, a major report um, or a, a major inquiry into a particular issue. So what we're digitising is an incredibly rich collection of discussions, decisions, background papers and so on. OK, now, I've already hinted at why they're important, but um, why these particular papers? Well, these are the papers of Cabinet. Cabinet is the core constitutional decision-making body within government. Um, it includes Cabinet ministers and obviously the Prime Minister. And what these records do is gives an insight into these discussions and decisions. Um, they almost certainly the starting point for any research into political history in the 20th century and also very useful for international economic and social historians now a couple of examples Um, for international historians almost every cabinet meeting starts with a discussion of um, international affairs um, after parliamentary affairs, international affairs the next thing that comes up and you will get an overview of all the major issues happening at the time, an aircraft hijacking in the 1970s, um, the uh, Japanese invasion of China in the 1930s. You'll get a summary, and then you'll d- get discussion. And this is at the start of every weekly cabinet meeting. For economic historians, there's incredibly rich stuff in here. Um, uh, just to take an example, um, from 1976, the three or four major cabinet meetings relating to uh, discussions regarding the bailout by the International Monetary Fund, the last time that Britain was in a a major financial crisis and we went begging to the IMF for money. These were marathon meetings that lasted for hours. Major, major issues about the future direction of the economy um, and financial and economic policy were discussed. And in essence, you could see these as prefiguring the Thatcherite attitude towards public finance um, and economy. And for social historians, there's an enormous amount as well, Um, from uh, cabinet discussions just after the war relating to um, uh, demobilised soldiers and homeless people squatting in empty houses and a Labour government actually deciding to evict them, to um, huge numbers of records and uh, memoranda conclusions and so on relating to the general strike in 1926 about discussions within cabinet, about the attitudes of different ministers and about decisions that were taken. So it's an incredibly rich collection here, um, stretching, as I said, from 1915, 1916, up until the late 70s. One of the interesting aspects of the cabinet papers that we've digitised is the, uh, the differences between how the cabinet operated in peacetime and wartime. And um, when you start delving into what we digitised, you, you'll begin to understand what I'm talking about. Um, cabinet in peacetime is how we'd expect it to be today. There'd be 20-odd um, senior ministers around a table um, discussing and commenting on the issues of the day and then coming to a decision. Cabinet wartime was very, very different. Um, Under Lloyd George, when the the Cabinet Secretariat was set up and minutes started to be created properly, he instituted a war cabinet of only four or five permanent members, um, none of whom had major departmental responsibilities, and this is very, very different from a peacetime cabinet. The War Cabinet um, included very senior figures, for example, like Lord Curzon and so on, who would have the ability to range across whole subject areas. And other ministers who'd formerly been in the peacetime cabinet would be invited to attend the new War Cabinet and discuss the issues um, that they were competent to discuss. But the decision-making power would rest with the four or five War Cabinet members. It would also be an opportunity to uh, bring in uh, members of the Chiefs of Staff: um, the, the the first Sea Lord, um, the Chief of General Staff, the head of the Army, and the um, Chief of Air Staff, the head of the um, the Royal Air Force, to discuss uh, matters and issues of the day. So. You're talking about a very, very different cabinet dynamic and structure um, during wartime in the second half of the First World War and the Second World War than you've got in peacetime. And that quite clearly comes out in, in, in the records and uh, and what you'll see when you, uh, you start sort of uh, investigating what we've put up online. Um, in addition, what you get in the Second World War, once Churchill takes over, is a, a very different style of cabinet as well, say, from Chamberlain, to some extent Lloyd George... Um, it, it, Churchill famously was a great orator, and some of that comes through um, his uh, wide-ranging strategic-level discussions of issues and matters relating to the conduct of the war. wonderful to read, very, very interesting. Um, But when, say, Churchill is not chairing cabinet and you've got someone like Clement Attlee um, towards the end of the war, you've got much drier conversation. But this might be dealing with the the home front, dealing with um, economic um, and uh, procurement issues rather than the grand strategic issues that um, animated and interested Churchill. Another aspect of these papers that I think is very important for researchers is to understand that um, for 20th century historians, um, in many cases for political, international, economic and social historians, this is or should be the first port of call. Because they're now online, because you can search the full text, you can go to these quickly and easily, get a summary of the main issues that maybe you're interested in and want to further your research in, and then use this as a jumping-off point to look at other records. For example, by looking at these, you can see that for a particular issue, um, say to do with foreign policy, that the uh, foreign office, the foreign secretary was involved in discussions in cabinet, so was a colonial secretary. You can then move on to foreign office and colonial office records and discover the discrepancies, the differences between those two departments and the issues that they had to deal with and the differences between, say, the British position and the position in France or the United States. So... These cabinet papers are a perfect um, way in to a whole range of um, political, social, economic um, issues that uh, researchers, students might want to look into for dissertations um, and for other studies. So it, it, it's a definite way in, and um, it's a way, an easy way into the enormous range of records that we have here. We have over 10 million boxes worth. Of records held here, um, nearly a third to a half of which deal with the 20th century, the period that these conclusions uh, deal with. Another aspect of what we're digitising are the uh, records of the Cabinet Office precedent books. Um, these are absolutely fascinating, I and mean, at the first glance, they don't sound all that interesting, they sound quite dry. These are the precedents by which the members of staff within the Cabinet Office operated, how they did this, how they did that, the procedures manual, I suppose, for for what they did. And it sounds actually quite dry. But in practice, when you start looking into these precedent books, you begin to see and understand the background behind the meetings themselves, why the meetings happen, why they're discussing particular things and not other things, why, for example, issues such as parliamentary matters are never mentioned in uh, the recordings of the discussions of Cabinet. And what you get is an understanding of the staff that sat around the cabinet ministers, that made the notes, the members of staff um, within the cabinet office who would sit around cabinet committees, um, the reasons why um, certain elements of discussions would end up in committees and certain elements would end up in the cabinet themselves and and the processes and procedures by which they went from one to the other. Um, By looking at these, and they're a very small part of what we digitise, but they're part of the, the contextual background we're providing, Um, It gives you a really rich idea of what's actually going on. It's more than just being able to read the words in the cabinet meeting and and the papers that put to the ministers. It's an understanding of why they're discussing this. Why is this not being discussed? both of these things can be just as important, if not more so, than actually what's written on the page. It's about going behind the written word, going behind what was meant, um, going behind what people intended to say and didn't, and why they didn't say it, and why certain things were said in a different context or in a different um, cabinet meeting. Um, It's a very, very interesting, um, to my mind anyway, fascinating um, approach to the records by looking at it this way, by looking at what's not written down, by reading between the lines... And um, hopefully those who look at these digitised records will get the the same view as well. The actual cabinet meetings themselves and how they're recorded is also interesting and develops over the 60-year time span that we've got here. If you look at the very earliest uh, records of the cabinet meetings that we've got, you've both got what are called minutes and then conclusions. The minutes, theoretically, are meant to be close to verbatim, but in practice are quite edited down summaries of who said what and when. The conclusions, when they start off, are just very basic. This was decided, and these are the main points of discussion. But what happens as the Cabinet Office gets reformed in the early 1920s is the minutes disappear. They disappear from the history book, and you're left with the conclusions. The conclusions grow, and they become fuller. And you don't just get um, a record of decisions made. You get more of an idea of the discussions that were had but what you've still lost is the names of exactly who's saying what. They come in occasionally, particularly when a cabinet minister is introducing a particular memorandum, then it's obviously quite clear that, say, it be the foreign secretary who would be, who'd be um, introducing that memo. Um, but in other areas, and particularly discussions that will follow from the presentation of a memo, it's not clear from the conclusions um, who's saying what, and this is deliberate. Because the conclusions themselves uh, were designed to be distributed within the higher levels of the civil service. They were meant to give the senior civil servants, the junior ministers, um, an idea, well, firstly to know what had been decided, and then an idea of the main areas of discussion behind that so they could justify those decisions to the staff junior to them and they could provide context for other situations um, with relating to the, the, the policy in question. Um as a result, the conclusions give you an awful lot of information, but they don't give you the personal names. And this is where the Cabinet Secretary's notebooks come in, because in some ways they're a return to the minutes that existed in the first couple of years of the Cabinet. Um, and as been said earlier, we're, we're digitising them alongside the Cabinet conclusions. Another aspect of the development of the Cabinet conclusions um, as we move along is um, their length and this is partly due to two things and the first and most important is that cabinet meetings get longer and longer and longer um particularly um during the Heath years 1970-74 and then following from that Wilson and Callaghan 74 to 79 the um cabinet meetings go on for 2-3 hours the cabinet might meet and um, particularly important uh, discussions um twice a day maybe one day after another twice in one day once the next day And this is where real discussions are played out and you get a real feel for what's happening. But these meetings go on for a very long time. And this is another aspect that that shows the development of government over these 60 years is that the memoranda get bigger as well. The issues are much more complex. There's more government to deal with. You've got whole swathes of industry that have been nationalised. You've got a much more complex society and environment than you had in the 1920s. So you have very, very large memoranda, some of them two, 300 pages in length by the 1970s. And then you have these marathon cabinet meetings um, in order to discuss these very large memoranda. And putting this into context then makes you understand the next step post-1979, and these records will be um, hopefully gradually um, brought into the digitised offering that we're providing here, the records of the Thatcher years, where she reduces cabinet. Cabinet meets less often. She prefers to have bilateral meetings with individual ministers. This is not just purely about, uh, it's not purely about undermining cabinet government. I might have had to some extent that effect. But in practice, it's being able to deal with the, the marathon meetings, the enormous amounts of paperwork that have to be got through. And another additional problem that rises in the, um, the mid-70s is fear of leaking. Um, many, many more parts of cabinet discussions end up in confidential annexes. Now, these confidential annexes are also being opened today, or opened with the digitization as well. So you'll be able to see the confidential annexes alongside the original uh, conclusions. So you're seeing one better than those senior civil servants you're seeing the stuff they didn't want the senior civil servants and the junior ministers to know about. Um, but again, this fear of leaks, fear from cabinet ministers and civil servants and so on, means that many more of the meetings um, end up with confidential aspects as well as going on for hours. So um, you've got a real development here over a 60-year period. And you can see, this towards the end in the 70s, you can see the strains under which the cabinet system of government um, is, is being put, particularly when the 1970s is a, is a decade in which you've got enormous um, economic problems and changes um, and joining the EEC for example it's it's a tumultuous decade and you can actually see that in the records as well. I suppose the final thing I should talk about is well why 1915 1960 a strange time um, for us to start digitizing these records well that's actually when these records started it's when they began. Um, Before this the actual meetings of cabinet were not recorded. There was no secretariat. There wasn't a secretary sitting in the corner recording what was said. Uh, the best you would get would be the prime minister's weekly or regular letters to the sovereign, to the queen or the king, um, outlining what had been discussed in government, in, in cabinet, and discussions that had been uh, uh, that had taken place and decisions that had been made. So um, it's only at this point, in 1916, actually, when Asquith. Uh, Uh, resigns from being Prime Minister and Lloyd George takes over, the formal secretariat is created and these proper um, conclusions and minutes are created and then we actually get to know what's really going on within Cabinet absolutely fascinating and what we're doing is taking it up until the late 70s which is the point at which these records um, become open for all members of the public to view on site at the National Archives and again this is why we're digitising because they're only available if you can come down to us in London. Um, By digitising they're going to be available to anyone across the world and this incredibly rich collection will be available for um, anyone who's got a computer with uh, internet access.
0: Great! Many thanks, Ed, for giving us that fascinating insight into the records and how valuable they are as a collection to all of us. All that is left for me to say is that the Cabinet Papers site is available now on the National Archives website. To visit it, go to www.nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash Cabinet Papers and see this fantastic resource for yourself.